if you've got your Bibles open to Hebrews, the book of Hebrews, chapter 9. Hebrews chapter 9. Did anybody grow up with parents or grandparents who used to talk about the good old days? You ever heard that statement? I remember hearing it from my parents and my grandparents, and then I would hear them say things like, you got it made. When I was a kid, we used to have to walk to school. Five miles, uphill, both ways. Does that sound familiar? Anybody ever heard that? In the snow, rain or shine. We didn't have school lunches. We had to take a potato with us. We put it on the stove. They're talking about these big pot belly heaters, you know, in the middle of the schoolroom. They didn't have those when my parents were kids, but they thought like they did. That's all you had for lunch. Christmas, I was lucky if I got a lump of coal and an orange. First time I heard my daddy say he got an orange, I said, an orange what? <laughs> we, we do have it made in a lot of ways. Uh, my wife has a button she can hit and her car will crank from inside. There were days when you used to have to crank your car. That's why they call it cranking car. You had to go to the front of it and do like this. Anybody ever have one of those cars? That's how you cranked it. Now, now they have Volkswagen Beetles that have the little thing, the wind-up thing on the back. I think it's really cute. But I guess it's going back to the days you had to crank the car. Well, we looked last week at the fact that some things are becoming obsolete in the economy of God. And yet, the people that the writer of Hebrews is writing to are still longing for the good old days. They're wanting to go back to the way it used to be. Here's a promise that I've just learned over my life, and I just believe this is God. Anything that God takes away or changes is always for something better. In fact, the end of chapter 8, it says this old way that you're used to is becoming obsolete. And yet, some people are so comfortable with the way things used to be, they just long for the, quote, good old days. Now, the older I get, there are some things I kind of wish we could go back to. All right? But in the sense of what God has done, folks, you don't want to go back. It's amazing that in the book of Numbers, the children of Israel coming out of Egypt even said, we want to go back to Egypt. They even said it was the land flowing with milk and honey, which God had promised them a land flowing with milk and honey. Egypt was not that for them. Egypt was a place where they were beaten and enslaved. And yet some people want to look back. And so today I want to contrast that. I've, I've titled the message, The Reformation or Reformation. And it's because something that was has been remade. God's made a change. It's not that the old was bad because God did it. It was declared by God, Old Testament. But it was always pointing to something better. And everybody look at me. We're going to cover a little bit of history today. Y'all okay with that? When I was your age, some of your age, when I heard the word history, my eyes rolled back in the back of my head. So don't make me come out there. You've got to get this, okay? There, there's got to be an understanding of the way things used to be in the economy of God, or else you won't appreciate the way things are now. So I've made it real simple. If you're taking notes, we're going to look at the old sanctuary, the old worship, the old results, and then we're going to look at the new sanctuary, the new worship, and the new results. Let me read the first ten verses as we get started this morning. This is Hebrews chapter 9, verses 1 through 10. Now, 
Even the first covenant had regulations of divine worship and the earthly sanctuary. For there was a tabernacle prepared, the outer one, in which were the lampstand and the table and the sacred bread. This is called the holy place. Behind the second veil, there was a tabernacle which is called the holy of holies, having a golden altar of incense and the ark of the covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden jar holding the manna and Aaron's rod which budded, and the tables of the covenant. And above it were the cherubim of glory, overshadowing the mercy seat. But of these things we cannot now speak in detail. Now, when these things have been so prepared, the priests are continually entering the outer tabernacle, performing the divine worship. But into the second, only the high priest enters once a year, not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the sins of the people, committed in ignorance. The Holy Spirit is signifying this, that the way into the holy place has not yet been disclosed, but while the outer tabernacle is still standing, which is a symbol for the present time. Accordingly, both gifts and sacrifices are offered, which cannot make the worshiper perfect in conscience, since they relate only to food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body opposed, imposed until a time of reformation. Let me catch you up to date if you're here for the first time. I've been preaching through the book of Hebrews. The book of Hebrews was written by an unknown author. It's one of those books. It's really the only one in the New Testament. We don't know who wrote it. Some of your Bibles are going to say the Apostle Paul of the Hebrews. That's not in the original language. We don't know if Paul wrote it or not. In fact, if he did write it, it's interesting that it's different than any of his other letters, both in, in the way he writes, the, the style, all of that's totally different. So I'm okay with the fact that I don't know who wrote the book of Hebrews. Some of you get nervous with that, all right? Well, I can tell you who wrote it. God wrote it, okay? I believe it was God-breathed. It was inspired of God. And so we studied and been walking through the book of Hebrews. By and large, the book was written to a church in or around Rome made up of Jews. Some of them had been Jews who've now come to faith in Christ, completed Jews. Others of them have walked away from Judaism but haven't yet fully gotten into the camp of being a Christian. But who else is it written to? Us. God saw to it that it was in the canon of Scripture, and so we look at it, and folks, it is rich with connection between the Old Testament and the New. I don't know of any other book in the New Testament that quotes from the Old Testament as much as this one does. Why does the writer of Hebrews quote so much from the Old Testament? Because he's speaking to people who ought to know the Old Testament. He's speaking to people, some of whom still can't accept the fact that Jesus is the Messiah. Did the Old Testament prophesy Messiah was coming? Yes. Did Jesus fulfill every jot and tittle of the Old Testament? Absolutely. And yet, they had in their minds the way Jesus ought to look when he came, and they just couldn't grasp the fact he rode in Jerusalem on a donkey. And he was crucified. That was a sticking point. They were expecting a conquering Savior which he was and is. But they were having a hard time accepting him as this long-awaited Messiah. So we get to chapter 9. And he talks about, verse 1, even the Old Covenant had regulations, literally requirements of the law, statutes of divine worship. What does the word worship here really mean? It means ministering to God. Do you know that's what we're doing when we worship? We are ministering to God. In fact, over in the book of Acts, chapter 13, verses 1 and 2, it talks about the people gathered together for worship. And then it says, while they were ministering to God. What does that mean? It means while they were worshiping. 
God spoke to them and said, set apart for me, Paul and Barnabas, to the work I've called them. They said they laid hands on them, set them apart, and sent them out on their ministry. So that's what it's talking about when there were these regulations of divine worship and the earthly sanctuary. What does that mean? It means basically pertaining to this world, this earth. So let's look at the old sanctuary. I've, I've got a picture of the old sanctuary. This, this is not drawn to scale. But if you can look at that and imagine this, the, the old, see where it says courtyard? That whole rectangle was 150 feet long, uh, about as long from this wall to that back door back there, okay? It was 75 feet wide, so about from this wall to that door over there. Now, could everybody get in the courtyard? No. How many people were there in the wilderness? Millions coming out of Egypt, of, of the Israelites, coming out of Egypt. The people of God. So they couldn't all get in there. Inside the entrance, see where it says entrance? That was about 30 feet wide, which meant more, you know, people could go in there. It's about seven and a half feet tall. More people could go into this courtyard. Well, then there was a separate area called the holy place. It was 45 feet long and 15 feet wide. Had a curtain. Only the priest could go into the holy place. Inside the holy place was a 15 by 15 by 15 place called the Holy of Holies. That was where only the high priest could go, and how often could he go? Once a year. All right. Have I lost anybody yet? All right. That's the old sanctuary. Here's his description. It had a lampstand, a table, a sac- it had sacred bread. So when they came in to the holy place, there would be a lampstand. If you've ever seen a menorah, it says seven. Some of them are more like nine candlesticks. It's a candlestick with, you know, it spreads out like this. And there's, there's light there. And everything in there was a representation of something to come. What does light represent in the New Testament? Jesus. Who is Jesus? He's the light of the world. In fact, the only word I've ever found in the New Testament that describes Jesus and us is the word light. Because it says the light of the world has come into the world. Jesus, but it also now calls us to be the light in the world. We appear as light in the midst of a dark and perverse generation, Philippians. Inside there also was this table, and it had 12 loaves on the table called showbread. And what's the significance of bread in the New Testament? Jesus is the bread of life. In fact, it's interesting to know, where was Jesus born? What town was he born in? Bethlehem. The word Bethlehem means house of bread. So the bread of life was born in the house of bread. So there's significance to all this stuff that, folks, they didn't get that. But you and I struggle getting it because we didn't grow up under a sacrificial system. And so he describes what the holy place looked like. Then he describes what the Holy of Holies looked like. And really the main thing in the Holy of Holies was the Ark of the Covenant. Scholars dispute when he says that the uh, table or, or place of incense was inside. It basically meant that it was of the Holy of Holies because it was probably right at the entrance to it. Because it was important that as incense was offered, it drifted into the Holy of Holies and was a sweet aroma before the Lord. What is the sweet aroma before the Lord now, according to Scripture? Our praise. So, folks, we've already been a part of worship this morning. As we sang praise to God, as you opened your mouth and used your voice to sing to God, regardless of what it sounded like to the person next to you, you know what God called it? A sweet aroma. 
In fact, as you live your life in worship, it's a fragrant aroma to God. He's pleased with that. Now, behind the second veil, that's this curtain separating even the holy place, now the Holy of Holies, 15 feet tall, 15 feet wide, 15 feet long. Main thing in there is the Ark of the Covenant. What's the Ark of the Covenant? It was a gold box that contained the Ten Commandments, the tablets of the covenant, the Ten Commandments. This, this is also saying there's something else in there. It was the rod of Aaron was in there. If you go back in the Old Testament, God was about to appoint the priesthood. And so he said, everybody bring a staff. Twelve tribes, twelve staffs, bring them out. Let me see them. The next day, the one that buds is the one I've indicated that's going to be the high priest. Well, Aaron's staff, he represented the tribe of Levi, his staff budded. What what does that mean? It's kind of like a tree in the spring. It put forth blooms or buds. And so they kept that. What else did they keep? They kept manna. Now imagine this. You're in the wilderness for 40 years. Wasn't a lot to eat in the desert. So what did God provide for them? Manna. It was this gum-like substance that fell overnight. And they could gather enough to eat. In fact, they could gather enough for the Sabbath. They didn't have to gather it on that day. And they ate that. Well, they kept a jar of that. Why? Because it reminded them of the provision of God. Now, you and I, again, we don't do a lot of that. We don't do a lot of these things that symbolize and remind us of the goodness of God. We probably ought to do more of that. We ought to have more altars in our life that we can go back to and say, this just reminds me of how God provided in this time and place. So they had the manna. They had the the rod that, that budded. They had the table of the covenant. And then they had these cherubim, these two creatures that had wings that covered. And again, just they were protecting the glory of God, but it represented the presence of God in that place. Now, he goes on to say, I can't speak a whole lot in detail. And it may just be because he'd never been in there. So he's simply given us Old Testament, the book of Leviticus and Exodus and Numbers that describe some of this. In fact, it's interesting. The creation of the world, as significant as that was, we have, about, we have two chapters in the whole Bible that describe this. Do you know how many chapters there are that describe the tabernacle and the temple in the Word of God? About 50. It's important. And so the people in the Old Testament understood the significance. They understood the layout. It, it was very critically important in their life. So that's the description of it. Let's look at the ministry of it. Beginning in verse 6, he says, When things are prepared, literally put in readiness, the priest continually entered into the holy place. Now, not into the Holy of Holies, but they continued to enter into the holy place. Why? Because every day they offered sacrifices. They don't get tripped up by the fact we have this day called Yom Kippur, which is a big day of sacrifice we'll get to in a minute. But every day they offered sacrifice. They offered gifts and sacrifices. Gifts were more of an offering that was given to God. It could be grain. It could be food. It could be oil. It could be wine. It was offered to God as a dedication. When Jesus turned eight days old, we see them take him to the temple and offer a couple of birds in dedication for his birth. But they also had blood sacrifices. And so every day, wasn't just one priest. There was a high priest, but there's a bunch of other priests. That's what they did. That's every day. If you had to go and offer a sacrifice, if you realized, God, I've sinned, then the prescription in the law was you got to take an animal to the to the temple or to the tabernacle in this case ultimately the temple the tabernacle was a temporary structure 
basically the word tabernacle means a tent, a hut made out of animal skins, largely. That's what they travel with for 40 years in the wilderness. And that's what God instituted as to remind them of, hey, my presence is with you. Now, it gets better in the New Covenant, but that, get the Old Covenant. Understand that's what it is. And so the priest every day had to offer these sacrifices. They were ministering to God. But then let's look at the one day a year. One day a year is the day of Yom Kippur. They still celebrate Yom Kippur, but there's no sacrifices. I want to read this to you. I'll try to make this brief, but I want you to catch. If you're the high priest... And Yom Kippur is approaching. Seven days before Yom Kippur, a week before Yom Kippur, you would leave home. You would go to the temple. You would practice what you were going to do behind the veil. Because you didn't want to mess up. There have been cases where people messed up behind the veil and they didn't come out again. Nadab and Abihu, back in the Old Testament, went behind the veil with weren't all authorized to be back there by God, and basically God turned them into two piles of ashes. So you were a little afraid. And so you went a week ahead of time to practice, and you were real careful, don't touch anything that's going to make me unclean for this week. Then on the day of, you'd offer a burnt offering, and you would take a ritual bath. Then the high priest would put on not his normal garments that were very colorful and had very significant meanings to them, he put on basically a, lin a white linen garment, a linen sash, white, a white turban on his head to, to just basically symbolize purity. And he would select a bull to sacrifice for his own sins and the sins of his family. He'd also choose two goats. One of them would be designated as the scapegoat. I'll talk about that in just a minute. The one that was scapegoat, they would tie a crimson string around his horns. The other one was going to be a goat of sacrifice unto the Lord. They would put a thread around the goat and then they'd let them stay there together for a little while. Then he returned to his bull and sacrificed it. He filled the censer with burning coals from the altar. He entered the Holy of Holies. He poured two handfuls of incense on the coals so that a cloud of incense covered the mercy seat. He went out again and obtained some of the blood of the bull and he sprinkled it over the mercy seat and then seven times on the ground before the cover of the mercy seat. Then he sacrificed the goat and performed the same ritual in the Holy of Holies. He then mixed the blood of the bull and the goat and put it on the horns in the altar. He sprinkled the altar seven times to consecrate it from uncleanliness of the Israelites. Then came the fun part. They went out to the scapegoat. He placed his hands on the head of the live goat and confessed all the sins of the Israelites and put them on the goat's head. The goat was led away into the desert amidst the jeering of people, saying, Be gone, bear our sins away. So what was that a picture of? It was a picture of God sending your sins from you. And they'd watch the goat until it disappeared out of sight. I've always thought, I don't want the job of taking that goat out into the desert and making sure it gets lost. Because the last thing you want to have is that thing showing up the next day. You don't want to wake up here in May or whatever out in the out in the camp, okay? Because people are like, our sins are back. That symbolized the sins being taken away. Then the priest, high priest bathed again, put on his normal colorful clothes, and completed the burnt offerings of the bull and goat plus other offerings. Now, 
you and I don't get all of that. But the people that the writer of Hebrews is writing this to initially understood all of that. What's he about to try to do? He's trying to show the significance of what God instituted in the Old Testament and the significance of how it's applied and fulfilled in the New Testament. So we've looked at the old sanctuary, the old ministry. Let me wrap up this section before we get to the last point. To just say some old results. Number one, there was no direct access to God. Who got to represent God before the people? The high priest, once a year, got to go into where they believed the presence of God was. Once a year. It only covered in unintentional sins. Did you catch that in Scripture? There was no provision for intentional sins. In fact, the book of Numbers, verse 15, chapter 15, verses 30 and 31. Jot this down. I think we got the words on the screen. says this. But the person who does anything defiantly, whether he is a native or an alien, that one is blaspheming the Lord. And that person shall be cut off from among his people because he has despised the word of the Lord and has broken his commandment. That person shall be completely cut off. His guilt will be on him. Think about that. If you do something intentionally, Yom Kippur doesn't take care of that. I thought about that this week and I thought, wait a minute, what about David? King David called a man after God's own heart. Did he commit an intentional sin? When he saw Bathsheba taking a bath and decided, I want her. That was intentional. He called her to his own palace. She gets pregnant. So what does he do to cover up? He brings her husband home, and the husband won't go stay with his wife. Why? Because he should have been in battle where David should have been. And so he stayed there to protect David. And so David sends a note back with him to the battle and said, Hey, next time y'all get into a fight, put him out at the front and then withdraw. So what does David do? Not only has he committed the sin of adultery, now he's committed the sin of murder. And so you come to Psalms 51. I don't have time to unpack all that. But folks, it's a cool thing because what does David do? He throws himself on the mercy of God. Because there's no provision in the law to cover that sin. And yet we find that God is a merciful God. Guilt remains. Memory remains. And it's only temporary. Folks, they had to do Yom Kippur the next year. In fact, really, the next week, they still made sacrifices. And all that was pointing to this new formation. Quickly, let me look at verses 11 through 14. But... That's a good three-letter word, man. Read Ephesians 2 sometime and just see we were dead in our trespasses and sin, but God being rich in His mercy. Look here. First, first ten verses. This is the way the old was. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, He entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation, and not through the blood of goats and calves, but through His own blood. He entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling those who have been defiled sanctify for the cleansing of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? What's the new sanctuary? Folks, the new sanctuary is in heaven. In fact, the last week we looked at the fact that the earthly one was just a shadow. Well, there's got to be an object to cast a shadow. The perfect sanctuary is in heaven. There's a holy of holies in heaven. Who gets to go there? Jesus and us. 
Did you catch that? Jesus brings us through the blood of Christ, not bulls and goats, not a scapegoat, but Jesus brings us through his own blood. In fact, Ephesians 2 puts it this way. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you've been saved, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. What happened to the earthly holy of holies? When Jesus died on the cross, that veil that scholars have said four horses could have been tied on each side of it and couldn't have possibly pulled it apart. The veil was ripped top to bottom. As if the finger of God just said, it's finished. You now come into the presence of God boldly according to Hebrews chapter 4. Why? Because of the blood of Christ. We don't walk in there based on our merit. It's not because I've memorized a bunch of scripture or the fact I'm a preacher or anything we've ever done. It's because of Jesus that I have access to the throne room of God. It's a perfect tabernacle. It's not made with human hands. It's not of this world. And there's a new worship. Just real quickly. In the Old Testament, when they chose a bull, they didn't go out into a pasture and say, okay, we need a volunteer. You know, some bull lifts his hoof. Okay, we'll take that one. Now, it had to be a perfect, spotless bull. In fact, it's interesting if you, if you heard the thing about this red heifer, the ashes of a red heifer. If you touch something unclean, if you touch a dead person or touch somebody with leprosy, for crying out loud, you were declared unclean. The only way you could be made clean was to get the ashes of a red heifer that they would mix with water and spread all over you, and then you would be declared clean. Unless you contracted leprosy, and then you were sent away. And so it's saying, if all of that was good to cleanse you, how much better is the cleansing that Christ offered? And by the way, there were no volunteers to be sacrificed in the Old Testament. The bull didn't know what was coming. When they came and put a rope around his neck, or the goat, when they put a rope around his neck and said, come with me, he had no clue what was about to come, because what would he have done if he had known? He would have run the other way. He would have hidden. I'll do this tomorrow, you know, kind of thing. Put it, put it off. I'll procrastinate. What did Jesus do? He willingly left heaven, came to earth as a helpless babe, lived a perfect, sinless life. The night before he would be crucified, he even asked God, God, if there's any other way, and yet not my will, but your will be done. Jesus knew what was coming and for the joy set before him endured the cross. What was the joy set before him? Restoring you. Jesus was our sacrifice. And because of that, we can be cleansed from a conscience of dead works to serve the living God. Folks, listen. As good as it was in the Old Testament to be able to walk away from Yom Kippur and go, finally I'm clean. It's so much better now. Why? Because Yom Kippur, you got dirty the next day. To be forgiven by God. In chapter 8 it says, he says, I will remember your sins no more. Why? Because he's forgetful? No. It's because he chooses to remember your sins no more. Quickly, four results. And there's a bunch of these, but I'm just going to hit four this morning and then we're done. We now have direct, intimate access to God. 
Intimacy with God was a foreign subject in the Old Testament. Now we can know God. Two, we are forgiven. Let that sink in a minute. If you're a believer in this place, if you're a Christian, you've given your life to Christ. The day you trusted Christ, the Bible says you are forgiven. What does the word forgiven mean? It means sins have been sent away. Remember the scapegoat? It's better than that. Because they can't come back. If they come back, it's because you chose to disobey God. But folks, we can live forgiven. God remembers our sin. No more. We have no condemnation or guilt. Folks, there was still guilt in the Old Testament. Because your sins were never taken away truly. They were just kind of covered for a little while. In the New Testament, according to Romans 8, 1, those who are in Christ, there's no condemnation. And last, we can now minister from a position of rest. Yes, we're saved by faith, through grace, by God's grace. But Ephesians 2.10 says we're His workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. Don't get the cart before the horse. The reason we do things for God now is not so that He will love us. Not so that He will save us. We do it because He does love us. And because He has saved us. So the question today is this. Have you come to faith in Christ? Has there been a time in your life where you have acknowledged, Yes, Lord, I'm a sinner. In the Old Testament, when you understood that you were a sinner, you went and offered a sacrifice. We don't do it that way anymore. We now come to the sacrifice that's already been offered. And when Jesus said it's finished, it was enough. We don't have to add anything to the cross. We can now come and minister from a position of rest. What does that mean? Hey, we're a child of God. We're a child of the King. We're a joint heir with Christ. Seated with Him in God's mind. Seated with Him in heavenly places. Let's live that way. Pray with me if you would. Father, what an awesome message to understand from your word that the new has come. There's been a reformation. The old has become obsolete. In fact, within a few short years of the writing of this book, the temple would be destroyed. Nowhere to run for sacrifice anymore. And yet, we can run to Christ. Thank you for that. Or would you penetrate our hearts and our mind with that thought? Would it impact the way we live our life tomorrow? And God, if there's someone here today that doesn't know you as Lord and Savior, would today be the day of salvation? Would they come to one of us or one of their leaders and simply say, tell me how I can know for sure that I'm a child of God? We pray this in Jesus' name.